listening to the People's Poetry Podcast with me, Jimmy Bowman. A hearty hello and welcome to People's Poetry Podcast. This is Series 8, Episode 3. This is the poetry and spoken word podcast that follows me, Jimmy Bowman, a teacher and poet myself, as I wander the UK to chat to a range of poets and explore the UK's love affair with poetry. Now, this podcast is not just for those who are already into poetry. Our mission, my mission, is to show you that there is poetry for all walks of life and there is something out there written for you. This episode's open mic superstar is Joe Hicklin of Big Special. And I've got to say, this poem properly made me grin. This is their piece, Shithouse. Never in a million fucking years did I ever think I'd ever see your fucking face again. I'll find you on the wall. I'll find you on the mountain. I thought I was getting better. I must think I'm fucking Mickey Mouse. This year's been a belter. Shithouse. I had a thought that poked me. Had a brainwave that fucking soaked me. I am heavy when wet. My youth sparks a truth to provoke me. But that boy will never know me. I'm as young as I'll ever get. I had a day that broke me. I had the words but they fucking choked me. Cooked in petrol breath. Ten years to hold me, armchair martyr, thou beest the holy. I've sat my seat to death. Frock schmucks and two smoking barrels, leave the ledges for the ferals. Here's a light of love and another cup of tea for your perils. You'll be running the rails, man is death's dog. You'll spend your life nipping at his coattails and barking at the fog. And when you run to the winds and the whistles, leave a ribbon around the thistles. You've got to get back home. Looks like you'll make it, kid, but you can't get out alone. Time to get a wiggle on. A bit of that, get up and go. You can't shine in shit, kid, and life ain't no fucking disco. Never in a million fucking years did I ever think I'd ever see your fucking face again. I'll find you on the wall. I'll find you in reflection. I thought I was getting better. I must think I'm fucking Mickey Mouse. This year's been a belter. Shithouse. I thought I was getting better. I must think I'm fucking Cinderella. In the school there lives a louse. Shithouse. This episode's featured guest is the wonderful Georgina Wilding. I went back up to Knott's to chat all things poetry by the canal. We spoke about Georgina's brilliant collection, Hagstone, out on Verve Poetry Press, being Nottingham's first young poet laureate, working class roots and surrealism in poetry. Enjoy. I am joined by Georgina Wilding in beautiful Nottingham. Thank you for sitting down and chatting. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you're welcome. You, uh, you're, I talk about it all the time because I like it when people listen uh, and hear that you reached out to me. Yeah. Because uh, you've got an amazing collection called Hagstone out yep. on Verve Poetry Press, which we're going <laughs> to wax lyrical about. Uh, congratulations. It's great. Eee, thank 
Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm I'm super proud of it. Mm. We were saying earlier about how I'm trying to be like a proud grandma, obsessed with with the work and, and pushing it as much as I can. So thank you. I mean, you've <laughs> got to be, haven't you? When you're, it's hard promoting your work. You feel like a bit of a knob, but yeah, you oh need my to God. do it. You need to do it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> First time on the podcast, so uh, those people that have listened before know that I'm going to ask you about your root into poetry. Then we'll talk about Hagstone, uh-huh. uh, but. Nottingham, absolutely love Nottingham. The Poetry Festival, I've said it before, I say it again, it's probably one of the best I've been to. Way! Super compliment. Super compliment, yeah. <laughs> See, butter you up before I get into the nitty gritty. <laughs> before you say, you're crap, get off. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's start with your route into poetry then. Can you, mm-hmm. I always ask, can you remember the, not the first poem you read or the first, it could be the first poem you read or first poem you wrote but like the first time you became aware of poetry yeah yeah I think for me my I don't even know if you'd call it interest being peaked but the first poem that I really remember was a GCSE well ironic to say I remember because I can't remember who wrote it or what the title was which is classic isn't it but it was um GCSE, you know, AQA anthology, and it was this um, poem that was about, it was a war poem, and it was about vultures, and it was comparing vultures to Nazis that were working the camp, and then coming home, and you know, on the way home, picking up some sweets for their kids, Mm. and it was about like, the duality of people, and, and how that's kind of both a blessing and a curse, and it really just kind of burnt into my mind, but I didn't know then that I liked poetry, it wasn't until I was sort of college past college years really that I uh, a friend brought me a collection um, called Mistakes in the Background by Laura Dockerell Mm. and I was obsessed she became like my absolute icon read everything that she did watched all of her YouTube videos and kind of caught the bug from her Um, and then stumbled across a Nottingham uh, poetry collection called the Mouthy Poets Big up Mouthy, I think they are responsible for so many poetry careers just like across the Midlands really. Um, so I went there kind of on a whim, not really knowing what to expect and just immediately fell in love with the people, the community, with the craft. I loved that there were there were rules to like writing poetry but you yeah. could absolutely break them and go your own way with it. So that's really where it started for me like 10 years ago or something like that yeah there seems to be like a real I know people bang on about London for almost everything but I said to you before this I mean this is what my third fourth time back in Nottingham like the Midlands seems to be a hotbed for for poets and producing like decent poets why do you think the Midlands has got such a sort of connection to poetry you know what I I don't think it's like one specific thing but but if I was to try and like you know talk on something I would say it's the fact that the Midlands in general even even down to like a city level is so patchwork Mm. we were talking earlier about how like you might be on one street and it's super affluent and the next street you know there's you know sofas on the street or whatever Um, it's such a mixed bag and I think that that breeds so many like unique stories voices viewpoints experiences and people are kind of drawn to poetry and music and creative writing you know to, to express that and, and to talk about what they've seen and lived through and survived <laughs> in the Midlands. Yeah, patchwork. I think that's a good, good way to describe the Midlands, Ooh. patchwork, actually. <laughs> so when did you transition into, for want of a better label, like 
poet? Like, when did you start writing oh my God. professionally, as it were? I hate this question because different people define it as different things. So I've heard some people say, oh, you're only a professional poet when you um, make your living from it. Mm. Um, I don't know. I don't know how true that is, to be honest. I don't know how many people can make a living just from being a poet, especially now. But for me, my first paid gig, um, I think I got paid like 50 quid. Um, and it was for a festival called the Lively Bird Festival yeah. in Burton Joyce. And it was so special for me because you had to apply to, to get booked on the stage. And I didn't realise, but as we were in the poetry stage gigging, across from us on the main stage was Top Loader. Who no. Right! That's so weird you say that. Last, last year... I, was, I performed at a festival and Top Loader were the headlines. No yeah, yeah, way. Yeah. And oh that, my that was God. like my first festival that I did poetry at. Listen, there Top Loader, wow. What about Dancing in the Moonlight? Is there a better song? I highly <laughs> say no, there is not. <laughs> Have they got any other songs? My, <laughs> no idea. It's Couldn't tell question. you. That is the one and only <laughs> song. <laughs> How weird though, Top Loader. Yeah, yeah. they were genuinely, genuinely headlining. And that was the first festival I'd done poetry wow. at as well. No way. Yeah. Must be something about poets and top loader, man. Go. I'd be buzzing <laughs> with uh, 50 quid. Yeah, <laughs> to, to it's pretty I'd good, take that right? now. Yeah. <laughs> I would take that now. So you, you said about, you know, it's not a question like answering. And something that's come up a lot over the series is like the label of poet. Yeah. You know, is that something, I mean... Obviously, I, if I was in your shoes, uh -huh. I would class myself as a poet. You've got yes. a bloody debut collection out oh on a poetry press. You're doing all this <laughs> other stuff. Like, but Thank how, how does that label sort of sit with you? Because I always still feel weird. Like, now I can claim that I'm a published poet because I've had a couple published, yeah. but uh -huh. I still feel like a wanker when yeah. I say it. <laughs> it's, that thing. it's because it's a novelty, isn't it? Like, if I'm, you know, in the back of a taxi or meeting someone for the first time, I just say that I'm a freelance writer. Mm. I don't go into the details because you get the the classic thing of people being like oh do you know this poet or do you know this poem and you I never do it's yeah. always like some really like far-fetched thing that you'd never possibly remember um so it yeah it is a bit it is a bit cringe isn't it especially now saying yes I'm a poet but we as poets I think that we are perpetually embarrassed of ourselves anyway yeah we just <laughs> love to why we write we love to air our dirty laundry <laughs> yeah exactly you never get a I used to do stand-up comedy and whenever I tell anyone that it was tell us a joke oh. but if you say you're a poet you never get tell us a poem oh do you not no, i do oh, do oh my god i get that all the time and my classic thing is i'm not telling you a poem but i'll tell you a joke right. and i break out my dad jokes and hope for the best go on best Dive dad in. joke it's gonna happen now all right okay are you ready yeah what do you call a chicken staring mm. at a lettuce chicken staring at a lettuce no chicken caesar salad it's <laughs> very good <laughs> Thank very you. Good. Can you put, can see how that's distracting yeah, for people, right? I'll, I'll put some canned laughter in for you. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, let's, let's make you squirm a little bit more then. So, Nottingham's first young poet laureate. What on earth? That's I amazing. How, I mean, congratulations. God, thank you. 2017 to 2019, am I yeah. right in saying? So, yeah. so, how did that happen? I mean, we've had a... Uh, we had Cecilia Knapp on, who was London's Legend. young person's poet laureate. But yeah, yeah. now I'm with the... Uh, Nottingham Whoa, young person's poet laureate so yeah I mean <laughs> how did it happen what were your responsibilities how mm -hmm. was it mm -hmm. so um, Nottingham is a UNESCO city of literature mm -hmm which means that there's an office uh, full of people that are working to promote literature in the city, to facilitate new writers and new opportunities. And it was, a, it was 2017, I'm pretty sure, that they advertised 
the Poet Laureate role like a job and they, they called out for applicants, you know, there were flyers everywhere and social media posts and I saw that um, at the time I was working a full-time corporate job and running my press just sort of like on the side um, and, you know, gigging little pub gigs as you do. Um, and I saw that and was like, oh, God, no, laureate. No, I'm not like a rich old white man that's super academic. That's never going to be me. <laughs> um, but thankfully, I had old tutors get in touch, friends, people that knew me just through social media saying, oh, have you seen this opportunity? You should go for it. And they kind of like broke the chip off my shoulder a little bit with that. Mm. Um, and I applied and I spent weeks on my application. It was like a... Uh, I think it was two or four pages of A4 um, answering questions like, you know, what have you done so far? Why would you love this role? What would you do with it? That kind of thing. Um, and you had to submit some written poems and some poems of you performing. Um, so I, I sent it off and crossed my fingers. Um, and then I got shortlisted, which was just... Exciting. Yeah, I mean, can, yeah. You, can you, like, imagine? It was just... I was beside myself with excitement, and it was at that point I was like, oh, my God, there's nothing else I want more in the world than to get this role. <laughs> like, I kind of believed in it a little bit more when that happened. So um, we then... The, the, the shortlisted four poets, which was Cleo, Asabre Holt, myself, um, Chris McLaughlin, and Ty Healy, we all got booked to do like a big performance together at the Angel Pub in Nottingham. Right. Um, they say it wasn't X Factor vibes, but it very much felt like <laughs> X Factor vibes, right? You yeah. were gigging for your life. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, pulled our names out of a hat for the order. And I was number three, which I was so glad about because that's my lucky number. So it was an omen. And I just, I went up there and gave it everything I could possibly mm. give it. And then the following week, I got the phone call to say, that I'd got it. Amazing. <laughs> it's beside myself. Yeah. It was, oh, I rang my grandma first thing and she was in Topshop with my auntie and I could hear her shouting like across the rails, die, she's got it, she's a laureate, she's a laureate. It was just what's, magic. What stylish grandma you've got at oh, Topshop. Yeah, trust me. She, the wilding women are dreamboats. I learn everything I learn from them. And she is a super, super trendy grand, long blonde hair, you know, all, uh, all of the fancy clothes. She's Love a dream. That. <laughs> so what were your like, responsibilities in the role what did, what did you have to do what did you I guess I guess what did you achieve because you're, you're no you're yeah. no longer it are you now yeah it's a two year two year role yeah I mean I, I could have done it forever I loved it yeah. um, it was kind of um, I would describe it as a bit of a two pronged role really so Firstly, my responsibility was to teach mm -hmm. and to kind of go into different pockets of Nottingham that maybe didn't know much about poetry or felt like it wasn't for them and run workshops and support them to, to you know, write and find their voices and, and fall in love with their stories and the form. Um, and then the other side of it was kind of being... Um, the city's poet so I was booked to do all sorts of commissions writing for people like Nottinghamshire Wildlife Trust um, for the council I did a poem about the, the remodeling of the Broadmarsh bus <laughs> station which was a joy yeah um, so it was really like trying to, to facilitate new voices and then also be the voice you know for those two years for, for people who needed one so must be quite a nice challenge to have to write poetry about God, yeah. you know 
I mean, not taking anything away from the council, but like <laughs> mundane things and yeah. things opening, I guess. Yeah. yeah. At least the one at the minute's got the Jubilee. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it was very much like learning to write to brief. It was almost like poetry as marketing. So like I got booked to turn on the um, Christmas lights with like a group of other acts, which was just... I mean, it was like something out of a movie for me. Yeah. It was unbelievable. I'd love to uh, do that. Yeah, Tell it them, like, was so great. Me, Barry from EastEnders. <laughs> you know. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so writing poems that you knew were going to like move the general public who maybe hadn't read a poem since GCSE or whatever. It was, it was like a, a different side of your brain that you had to switch yeah. on to write for people rather than from you, yeah. if that makes sense. I love, I love like a poet's poem, but that's what gives me a real buzz and that I've said it before I'll say it again that's why I started this podcast is because when you sit and chat to a poet and uh-huh. you hear them speak and then you read a few of their poems people think oh actually it's not this pretentious knobby thing yeah there is poetry out there for me so Absolutely. pretty cool that that's part of that role mm-hmm. creative director for Nottingham Poetry Festival as well yes. I mean I mentioned it already and um, <laughs> I would have mentioned it regardless I genuinely think it is Probably the best poetry festival I've been to so far in the UK. Such an honour. Yeah. Such an honour. So what? What? how are you involved with that? Well, you know what? As my um, job as laureate was coming to an end, I so when I got the job as laureate, I went freelance with my corporate job. So I quit, you know, the day job and uh, was touting around different organisations that needed a writer. Um, and... I thought I don't want to go back to doing corporate work pretty much full time, what am I going to do? So I sent an email out to the people that run and organise Nottingham Poetry Festival which is Henry Normal, Craig Shettle and Tommy Farmyard Um, and I said my role as laureate is coming to an end, I would love to lend myself to the festival, is there anything I can do for you? Like you know I could programme a couple of events throughout the year to keep the festival kind of going past Mm. the 10 days that we do the festival on. So it was just a reaching out, um, a long shot really and then after that a few months later I had a meeting with Henry Normal and subsequently Craig and they said we're looking for a new director somebody to bring something to the festival that maybe we haven't seen before or you know just further develop what we've already got would you like it (laughs) and I again nearly died it was the best (laughs) thing that had ever happened to me I think I was just beside myself so of course I said yeah and then two years of absolute mayhem you know Mm. massive learning curve managing um, like the headline poets as well as all of the community groups it's very much like Edinburgh Fringe Festival yeah I was going to say that right you program the big hitters if you like but really the joy in it is facilitating all of the pockets of Nottingham as much as you can and Mm. and trying to support you know people would email and say oh I really want to put on this poetry gig but I don't have a venue so it'd be your job to try and pair nights up with venues or poets up with open mic nights it was really it was like a big project project management job really um but just so rewarding not without its challenges yeah as it is running something like that you know you can't please everyone and there are always hiccups in the road but I loved it loved it and uh, if you haven't been I mean go because multiple venues across Nottingham (laughs) I think series one I came up here to see Ravel Sade. And she was wicked. Another legend. Yeah, and uh, that was why I discovered the festival, because it was in 
I can't remember the name of the pub. It was a cool little pub, old yeah. school pub, and there was like a little downstairs room. Nice. Um, and she was doing stuff in there, and it was amazing. Has, <laughs> has Nottingham always had this sort of, like, because you've grown up here, mm-hmm. has it always had this sort of vibrant poetry scene, or is it something that's developed the older you've got? Um, so I joined Mouthy Poets in, I think, 2012, 2013. Um, so that was already up and running by the time I kind of stumbled across it um, and it wasn't really until I joined them that I realised there was this whole massive subculture of poetry in Nottingham mm. so I think it's one of those things where because it is a bit of a niche until you go to a poetry night or you know your friends invite you along or whatever maybe it's not so obvious but god it is there and yeah. it is thriving there's DIY poets in Nottingham as well now there's also like Gobs Collective there's so many little like nuggets of Nottingham that have these big nights So I think, obviously, we've got, you know, the culture in general of writers in Nottingham. um, But really, I think poetry for me was finding my collective and my peers. And it just opened everything up to me from there. Yeah. Uh, But the good thing about the festival is they really, really promote it. And they put, like, banners on the council house and stuff. So if you maybe stumble across that, then it's a win. People, you know, find out that Nottingham's got this massive scene. So, Yeah. yeah. I think last year rather than go on holiday I just sort of wandered around the UK I think this year I should go on like a poetry pilgrimage yeah and just spend the six weeks like coming to places like Nottingham and checking out these nights because so many people talk to me about them the other thing I've got to mention is a mud poetry press so yeah am I right in saying you run your own poetry press yeah I do it's on hiatus at the minute Um, as I got the poet laureate role and then obviously went freelance with the corporate job I just couldn't run a press at the same time as all of that so I kind of um, put it on pause but yeah my when I finished my degree well my dissertation um, was practicing putting together a poetry collection so I did a call for poets and submissions and then all of my theory was why I was suggesting the edits that I was suggesting and you know what theory backed up what decision um, and I loved it so much that I decided, right, I'm going to set up a press and, yeah. and do it properly. And I went to um, a local organization called New Business Ventures, and they are like a creative business um, advisory uh, organization, would you say? Um, and they helped me learn, you know, this is how you set up a business. This is how you create a brand identity. This is how you do your taxes. You know, this is how you create collections that look like they're all part of one big um, yeah you know like magazine if you like um so yeah i learned all about that and then and and set it up and it was it's incredible it was such a joy and i cannot wait to pick it back up and, and get it going again yeah it must be quite a nice nice feeling knowing you're putting poets work out there and, and yes, getting it out there so for rewarding. As well. and seeing it seeing the books in waterstones yeah. in nottingham oh. Again, a moment where I just couldn't believe myself <laughs> staring at the books on the shelf, like seeing mud press on the shelf in Waterstones. Mm. It was just amazing. I amazing. think I think I'll melt if I ever get a book in yeah, Waterstones. Right? I'll literally, just melt and you know, have to scoop up this puddle. Yeah. You mentioned university, and it's something I ask. I mean, I've been uni, you've been uni. Not everyone I've had mm-hmm. on the podcast has been uni, but. <laughs> For some people, it's an amazing time. For some people I spoke to, they've said, oh, you know, it was kind of a waste of three years. Uh-huh. Do you think university helps you foster your sort of writing or you as a writer? Mm-hmm. So I was a member of the Mouthy Poets before I went to uni to do creative okay. writing. So my degree was in creative and professional writing, which was 
I'm so grateful for it because not only did it teach you how to be a professional writer, so writing for the web, doing SEO, um, like press releases, all of that kind of the more corporate side of writing, but it also nurtured your creative writing. So all of our lecturers were either poets or screenwriters or novelists that were operating in the scene then. So they had you know books out and were doing stuff themselves. So um, I had tutors like Adrian Bruckner. Uh, who else I have? Kathy Grindrod, um, Anthony Cropper, who were all like poets, and and learning from them really changed my writing yeah, because yeah. I'd just written, well, not just, but I'd only experienced writing in the mouthy poets for the stage because we would put on two gigs a year, so I was very spoken word, um, which was just amazing. But then to go to uni and kind of learn, well, what's the difference between spoken word and page, and and how you can express yourself differently in the different genres definitely really helped me come on and I think you know learning those corporate skills as well helped me get a day job yeah yeah um, but most of my opportunities came from mouthy poets at the start like they were such a great organization that were putting you out there you know shadow teaching in primary schools and stuff and watching the pros so it was a real mix of both of those things actually I think if I'd not had both of them mm. maybe things would have been different but for me I loved uni yeah it sounds it sounds a lot more positive than some people have spoken <laughs> about their university experience we should talk about Hagstone. I mean, I feel like I've gone Whoa. through your uh, I've gone through your LinkedIn <laughs> profile now. Oh my god! So Hagstone debut poetry collection out on Verve Poetry Press. Yeah. If people aren't aware of it, how would you describe this collection? Um, I would describe it as sweary, sexy, uh, inappropriate chaos. <laughs> A little bit sad in places. Um, sort of half autobiographical like most poetry collections are um, full of surrealism and magic is, mm. how I, is how I would sell it in my elevator pitch. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get on to the surrealism. Hagstone though, I mean I wasn't aware of, of this Hagstone business oh. so you know what what is a Hagstone oh, and, and why, so excited. why did uh, you choose that yeah. as the title for uh -huh. your collection? That is my favourite question to ask. I'm so glad oh, that you've asked it because I'm obsessed with hagstones. So a hagstone is a stone that has a naturally occurring, that's the key, naturally occurring hole all the way through it. Right. And there's so much myth and legend around hagstones. You can read a hundred different stories about a hundred different things that they do. But the story that has always piqued my interest is that supposedly if you look through a hagstone mm. you are able to see the magic that is actually happening all around you so it's like seeing into the realm of the fae in the realm of the fairies right. um, as, as people like to call it um, so back in the day when we would have like uh, cunning folk and like village witches if you were having terrible luck right let's say you know uh, you kept falling ill or your family were you know you were losing all your shoes or whatever was happening you might go to the local uh, village cunning folk and say I'm having terrible luck please help me and they'd likely give you a hagstone as well as other treasures of course but they'd give you a hagstone and say look around your home I bet 
someone has cast a spell on you mm. or given you an item that they've actually cursed. So if you look through the hagstone, you might see the gremlin running around your house stealing and hiding all of your shoes <laughs> or the demonic boyfriend that's actually a curse, you yeah. know, on yeah, your yeah, life. Yeah. We've all been there, right? Um, there's a film called Spiderwick Chronicles where you see the kid using a hagstone to see uh, the gremlins and stuff that are attacking his house and also the good the good little gremlin things that are helping him yeah. as well so it's just it's such a cool legend it is cool it reminds me of a there's a rock in Howworth or near Howworth on the moors yeah and if you crawl through it apparently you're going to get married it's, wow. that, it's that sort of myth and legend it's always rocks though <laughs> so why why hagstone for this collection so the title came last, actually. Right. Um, the Well, I say last, that's not true really. It kind of came in the middle, maybe. I knew I, knew I had a book that was full of magic surrealism, but set in very, very ordinary settings, which technically is actually magic uh, realism, because mm. it's set in real settings, but you know, the tables are floating and the chairs are flying out the windows on, on their own, that kind of thing. Um, and so when I was trying to find a title that really summed up this idea of looking into the reality but seeing what the forces that are at play that maybe you wouldn't see without help, hindsight, you know, a magical tool, um, it, it, it kind of came from really thinking about what is this about? What is this collection about? And, and Hagstone just... It, it, it just it just happened. I know that's such a frustrating thing to say, but one, once I remembered yeah. Hagstones, I realised, oh, perfect, yeah, yeah. because this book can be a Hagstone for the readers that are following the little timeline that we're looking through in the book, and and they can kind of see, yeah, okay, this poem set in a childhood bedroom, but all of a sudden the suitcase is alive and it's doing all this crazy stuff, you know. Um, so it, it really fit for me, and also wishing that. I'd had a hagstone to look through, you know, as a teenager in my early years to to see maybe that's not the best decision that you should make or mm. maybe that person's been sent into your life for a negative reason and perhaps avoid them, you know. So that's that's where it came from. I think it is a great title because uh, and I'm going to I was going to talk about it in a bit, but there's some of the stuff you, you talk about in there, obviously working class environments and you get a real sense of place, but there, there's kind of uh, like a beauty to some of these really mundane rituals that you go through as, as like a, a working class person. Yeah. Uh, so no, I think it's a great title. It's split into three sections as yes. well, isn't it? Yes, it how, is. How comes is the question. It, it kind of, again, was one of those things that happened as I was discovering the book and discovering the placements of it. So in my mind, I realised that the kind of timeline that we're looking at the opening section is, for me, a look at being powerless mm -hmm. and you're, you're experiencing a lot of things happening to you and it's the rebuttal against that and the, yeah. the sadness in that really, uh, in this particular kind of story. And then the middle section, which is maybe my favorite, um, is like the jostle for power. So you see that the poet, the poet's voice, the, the, the main character or characters start to make their own mistakes or explore their sexuality or start to look around them and realize that they have something. Um, mm. And even if they are making terrible mistakes, they're your own. So it's that jostle for power in the middle. And then originally I thought the last section would be 
having received power and I really imagined it being this like Disney villain evil uh, character that's like burying you know men alive and like you know all this crazy stuff and it wasn't until actually I was working with my mentor that I was very very blessed to work with Caroline Bird who said I don't believe your your final section and I don't believe your ending I think you want it to be that you're powerful but actually it's very sad and mm. she said you're you're thinking you're powerful in the way that you know a girlfriend that's been cheated on smashes a boyfriend's car up thinks she's powerful actually it's a bitterness and it's yeah. a sadness and it made me realize oh my god that's where I am now in life I'm kind of standing in the wreckage of all of this stuff that's happened and, and asking myself what next mm. which is why the piece ends on a poem called auntie at the birthday party where the girls in the poem are looking at their own hands and back to the auntie who's got all of this power um, and back to themselves again and kind of realising, oh my God, is this to come for me? Like, what's next? Yeah. So it's not tied up in this neat bow. It's that, uh, again, you're sort of standing in the aftermath of that jostle for power. Um, Love that. What an, <laughs> what an explanation. Woo, thank you. So reading it, I thought key themes that sort of jumped out of the book obviously working class roots and growing up in that environment. There's a lot of sort of toxic masculinity in there. Uh Broken homes, definitely sort of girlhood. Mm -hmm. And then as you say, the surrealism. And I I thought to myself, everything I write is about the community I grew up in and my working Mm -hmm. class roots. Mm -hmm. And I've never really considered writing it in a surrealist way, Uh which is, I mean, it's quite interesting because a lot of people that write about working class roots and things Mm -hmm. like that, they they have this sort of gritty realism to it, which which yeah. I love, and mm-hmm. I still think you have that. But mm-hmm. what what inspired you to kind of take some of the poems in that direction? Yeah, I I mean I think part of it is that I even from being you know super super young imagination for me was like my escapism from being you know in a family dynamic that I didn't want to be in or whatever was was happening I was the kid that would you know had rocks that I would imagine could project their you know origin story on the wall in the moonlight and you know it just is almost a personality trait for me to see the magic in in everything um so p- partly that's just kind of how I experience the world. But actually, when it comes to writing um, about an experience that was maybe difficult or that maybe has so much meaning packed into it, for example, there's a poem, I think it's called After It, where we're all on the park, you know, getting pissed. That's absolutely true. We were 14 getting battered on Red Hill Wreck, you know, WKD, whatever. Um, but it wasn't about that. It was about wanting more. This We didn't know what we wanted, but we mm. wanted more. Mm. And finding surrealism, magic realism, helped me to write that feeling of like desperate chaos and like lusting after something more into the work. Because in that poem, for example, the night became a physical thing that we were trying to catch and run after and and, and chase. And, and, and it became not about the boys and the drinking at all. And surrealism kind of opened up yeah. that level of um, like hinting at something more rather than just saying, oh, we wanted more. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, no, it, it makes total sense. opens it. So, I don't know if you've heard before, obviously I pick a couple of poems and get get you to speak about some of those poems. Poems that I absolutely love, Perspectives, Ants, (laughs) Understanding Boys, The Gate, 
family tapestry, recreation ground, <laughs> granny pants <laughs> and mirrors. Oh um, gosh, thank you. I mean, a lot of those poems, I think I'm drawn to because they're, they're very much working class poems uh-huh. and I will wax lyrical about that. <laughs> um, I think you're very talented as well at powerful end- endings like perspectives I think was a wicked ending thank you so um, much I'm only going to talk about a couple of those though because we have limited time damn but um, <laughs> I mean ants I've got a poem about ants I, I love ants um, <laughs> and I, I really enjoyed ants because of the violent imagery of a broken home was still there even though you're talking about red ants absolutely um, again a really powerful ending and it had jelly shoes in. I mean, I forgot Hooray! about jelly shoes. It's like Classic. a massively 90s thing. But <laughs> yeah, could you talk a little bit about ants? Oh, I would, yes, I would love to. So it, it's rooted in a real memory, a real experience um, as a kid, having the seesaw that did go up and down and round and round in the garden, and it did land in an ant's nest, and I was bit to pieces by red ants, who are, which I will forever hate after that <laughs> terrifying experience. Um, but I used that to then create a piece that kind of discussed this feeling of um, having a mother figure that was, yes, around, but not really stepping up or not really protecting me from situations I wish she had have done. So in the poem where the kid gets, you know, eaten to shreds by ants and they're regurgitating her, you know, under the ground, the mum is just there with a cup to the grass listening to them do that and trying to translate it you know after it's happened and it was a way for me to kind of explore this idea of feeling like I was just abandoned and kind of left to be picked apart you know not by ants obviously in reality (laughs) although it may have felt like that on occasion um so again it's that thing of magic realism surrealism opening up that deeper level of understanding without you having to say oh I felt like I was just left to be picked apart it become this amazing like uh experiment for me and like oh how can I say this in a way that's not saying it but it is yeah you know it was it was a great end image just having the mum listen to you know regurgitating your daughter downstairs yes yeah. thank Man. you uh, understanding boys it's kind of like a list poem in a way I guess yeah it um, is some some killer lines in that brains made of microwave mills <laughs> <laughs> um, and and talking about how boys think you can't trick like girls and stuff yeah, like, yeah. I mean where did that come from yeah. So, um, God, where did it come from? I I don't know how that happened. It was one of those poems that sort of started to fall out of me, but it was originally very, like, uh, real. It was very much like, you know, boys beat you up or do this or that. And it was working with Caroline, who said, actually, I think that you should push this and you should be as as extreme and and ridiculous as, as you can be rooted in these kind of real examples again so I started to to think of this world where what I said was absolutely true it was true that boys hair was made from office lint (laughs) like it is a fact of life (laughs) right so (laughs) I really ran with that and it became um, there was a line in there actually where I think I said boys can do something or boys could do something and I got the advice that actually don't do that like make everything a certainty in this piece which unlocked a level of fun for me that just let me run with and of course there are some real examples in there that did happen to me or happen around me 
but it, again it was that magic surrealism that allowed me to just uh, run wild with it and have a bit of fun no it is very 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 good <laughs> the you. gate I mean <laughs> like the power of smell in that poem is amazing and you talk about the smell of, of the open gate and for me it just reminded me because you talk about like your granddad in that poem don't mm -hmm. you yeah. it reminds me like, if I smell wood treatment <laughs> I instantly think of my granddad's shed like, whenever I walk past it so, so I had that yeah. but again powerful end all the sort of smells and the bit where you're talking about you know he only asked for socks at Christmas and it's linked yeah. to his pride like I loved it there's there's something about granddads and how bloody proud they are oh, why they're so yeah. proud do you like, think that happens to you when you become a granddad no I, I think know. it's a generational <laughs> thing I think we're past it we're all fucked like <laughs> But yeah, I, oh I loved God. that because it reminded me of my own granddad. But yeah. obviously it's quite a sad poem because yeah. you're, you're sort of talking about the end, aren't mm -hmm. you? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, so my, uh, probably maybe 10 years or, ago or, or something like that, my granddad was diagnosed with Parkinson's and I've got very young grandparents. They're wild. They are fun. Granddad's very much like a Dell boy. Um, I'm one of 12 grandkids. I'm right. the eldest. Um, and so grandma and granddad were like the pivotal like just icons in all of our lives really and granddad would always run around with us and you know he was crazy taking us on all sorts of wild and wonderful trips and we'd you know line up on the stairs and pretend that we were on the bus to Skegness with granddad as the driver you know <laughs> he's such a wild and amazing character and then some years ago I remember going to grandma and granddad's as usual just a normal day but there was um, something about the house that smelt different mm. and it worried me because I thought oh my god does this smell is this smell like a an old person smell are they old people mm. like ha my grandparents are not old people to me oh doggo in the background um so yeah I, I, that that smell really made me worry like oh my gosh they're human beings they're not these uh, you know interstellar icons that we've always see, seen them as so that poem was really exploring that horrible horrible uh, sense of realization that you know at the time granddad you know he, I mean, he's not very well thankfully he still turns up to all of my gigs you know I can be mid gig Amazing. in Nottingham city centre and out of nowhere granddad will walk in halfway through and buy everybody a pint you know <laughs> so I'm absolutely blessed to love him and be loved by him but yeah that poem is hopefully the first and last poem I'll ever need to write about worrying you know about granddad yeah. and you know all what, of that what an absolute lad <laughs> recreation ground I guess for me is, is sort of the poem that I was referring to earlier when, you, when you're talking about Hagstone mm -hmm. and looking through it and seeing either something really beautiful or something grim. I, I think that poem does that really well. You know, the lion corner shop Chris for confetti. It just, <laughs> it summed up like how shit it is to be working class, but yeah. how you just make the best of it sometimes. Absolutely. Like, but I thought that was a, an amazing poem for imagery again. Thank you, thank you. It was another really fun one to write. Yeah. Like you say, there's, there's these things that are your normality, like crisp packets and rubbish everywhere that you don't even, like I didn't, I didn't really know, or maybe not consciously know anything about class probably until I went to uni which is very late in the game but you know I was surrounded by all my friends in Arnold we were very you know similar we never had like super well-off friends we were all in the same boat so it wasn't until I went to uni and got invited back to friends homes back to where they lived that I was like oh my god yeah, this yeah, is yeah. what the hell this is something else like um and I, I didn't realize that you you know not everywhere has rubbish all over the place and 
you know, there are some houses that you can put plant pots outside and they won't get stolen from. <laughs> like, what the hell? Yeah. What's this world? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I definitely, definitely played upon the fact that I'm a legit Cockney Yay. when I went to uni in the yeah. Midlands because they'd all be like, oh, fuck me, you're from London. Oh, <laughs> like, God. Oh, <laughs> but yeah, I was very aware of class at, at university as well. Right. Last one I bring up is Granny Pants because I feel like there's got to be a story there, isn't there? Do you know what? Yes. And it obviously Bridget Jones vibes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love the line, bungee ourselves into a thong because, again, it's like these sort of horrid routines that you bring on yourself as yeah. a working class, younger person. Yeah. You don't you don't need to do that at all. But no. there's sort of things that boys and girls, I think, do just yeah. make themselves do. Maybe it's social it. pressure, I don't know. Yeah. But, but yeah, Granny Pants, there's got to be a story there. Absolutely. I was a, a friend at school. I don't know if you remember at school, but there was a phase where all of us girls went through a phase of wearing those really skin tight, like elastic school trousers. And if they were old, you would start to see the elastic like right. poke out of the fabric. They were, I don't know what, maybe they were lycra, I don't know. They were like really cheap, horrible trousers, but we all loved them because they showed off our butts, right? <laughs> or what little you know, butts we had then, it, right? That's what they say. <laughs> and um, a friend of mine, she grew up just having a dad. She didn't have a mum or like many aunties and stuff. And so maybe, well, I don't know, read into that what you will, but one of the boys happened to notice that through these super tight trousers, she had what they called granny pants yeah. on. So you could see her, her big knickers through the trousers and she was annihilated for it. And um, so I <laughs> raided my underwear drawer. Thankfully, my mum was cool. She let me have a little thong or two back in the day. I mean, it's horrible to think, isn't it? Good God. Um, so I gave her a few pairs of my <laughs> Asda thongs <laughs> so that she wouldn't be picked on so much by, by the boys at school. Yeah. Um, and there's so many examples of that, isn't there? Where the, like I remember boys slating us because some of us shaved our armpits and some of us didn't. And they'd be like, oh, you should shave your armpits like that girl does because it looks better or, you know, talking about how we should shave our downstairs areas um, because that's what they'd seen or what they thought was cool and, like, yeah. the cool girls did that, so you had to do it. So that poem was really, like, that bit in the book where you're in that jostle for power, like, you're still being dictated to by other people and you're realising, like, oh, OK, this is what I've got to do to be, like, cool or survive not being bullied by the horrendous boys at school, but the end of that poem the girls are in the thongs and they're like walking the lines of the football field but they're using the sun to tell the time because they're fucking bored yeah and they're like oh another fucking rigmarole i've got to go through to you know not die in secondary school great cheers for that you know you do have a lot of shit in secondary right. school <laughs> it's you? hell isn't it yeah <laughs> big big endorsement to this book as well i mean flicking through it one that I mean, I think he's amazing. Roger Robinson. Oh, my God, what a legend. I know. What a man. Talking about your book, that must have been cool. Unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. Years ago, so when I was the Poet Laureate, one of the things that you kind of got as enrichment was you got to have two mentors for a few weeks. And one of the mentors that I chose was, was of course, Roger, because he's just an icon, and I adore him. Um, and so I worked with him on getting, like, business advice as a poet what do I need to do to be seen to be heard 
good and mm. he really coached me through a lot way back then but even before then right at the start of my poetry career through Mouthy Poets I got to go on an Arvon writer's residency and Roger was one of the lecturers for that week and um, he just is such a wise and clever and kind person that I was enamored by him even then and just tried to learn as much as I could so you know when it came to the book coming out I you know sent him a desperate email saying if you would like to read this book I would love it and if you like it I'd love a quote and just by some chance of luck he agreed he agreed to read it and even more luck he liked it thank god for that amazing Uh, and something else I saw, long-listed for the Outspoken Prize for Performance. Yeah! That's pretty cool. Oh my gosh, I know, honoured, absolutely honoured. I I really love Outspoken, I love what they do and I love what they stand for. Obviously, Anthony is a legend as well, yeah. so whenever I see them open their doors, I always send you know a couple of bits through and, and hope for the best. And yeah, I got long-listed this year, so I was really, really, really pleased with that. I'd been long-listed before, like years prior, and then it was it just felt massive because they were such like a you know they're an icon aren't yeah. they outspoken no, they are. they're such a, a big house. night right powerhouse yeah and so Anthony is a G yes he's uh <laughs> through his I mean lockdown I've spoken about it before but the um thing he used to do with Raymond Antrobus on Instagram live god yeah put me onto so much good poetry very clever open smart guys who do not gatekeep at all which I think is just yeah. it, it needs to be sung about as much as possible I think yeah. people like that so. I'm working up the courage to ask both of them on at some point <laughs> yeah. like, I feel like I'm Raymond Antrobus's biggest fan yeah. I, lo- I love oh the perseverance you should he's got a poem that's in a form it's uh, is it a pantoum is that how you pronounce it P-A-N-T-O-U-M I yeah. think is how you spell it and it's called Happy Birthday Moon read it it's incredible mm. ooh incredible He's, he's brilliant, he's brilliant. <laughs> so, at the end, I've got some quick-fire questions. I mean, they don't necessarily have to be rapid responses. Oh, but, God, um, okay. But the, the three that I always ask is the... I mean, I've changed it over the years. I always said, how do you know when the poem's finished? But I've rephrased it now. How do you, how do you personally know when to leave a poem alone? Oh, my God, I don't, I don't, I don't think, I don't. There are poems in the collection that I'm still like, oh, did I get that right? Should I have changed this or should I have kept an earlier draft? Um, I think for me, maybe it's when you can read a poem top to bottom and think about it for hours afterwards and maybe nothing screams at you too violently mm-hmm. <laughs> to yeah. change. It's yeah. always, it's always going to talk to you after you've written it. It's because you're, you're trying to, like get a whole world or a whole mood or a whole experience into one teeny tiny snapshot so I think it's always gonna haunt you a little bit whatever poem you write but yeah if it's not keeping you up at night screaming at you then I think it's close to done that's a good answer (laughs) editing process you've written a poem you've put it away for a bit you get it back out what's the first thing you do for me personally when I'm editing I get a word document and I put the you know whatever version I'm on at the top and I copy and paste it underneath and I just rip it to pieces change it rewrite whatever's feeling clunky um, and I'll keep doing that I'll keep copy and pasting it so I'll have version and version and version and version of the same poem in, in different forms or different voices or different tenses even in the same document and just watch it grow and then yeah. if I make a change I don't like maybe I go back and pull it in um, but for me I think when you write your first draft you don't normally know where it's going to go or what you're going to say like something kind of a message or an idea kind of comes to the surface in you 
and then you kind of surprise yourself like well, I didn't know I felt like that or I didn't know I was still upset about that thing so for me then really the, the second or third or fourth draft is trying to hone in on that surprise and make sure that it reads you know roughly yeah. what you were trying to say it's a good idea I'm going to nick that <laughs> uh, and the last one which is the one that everyone goes <laughs> why do you think 2022 poetry is flourishing as much as it is for quite an old form of literature yeah here, me and you are sat here talking for almost an hour about poetry uh-huh. what do you think poetry's appeal is why do you think people are so into poetry still yeah i think anybody can write a poem i think that's the joy of it mm. you just need to know how to read and how to write or you could you, maybe you don't even need to be able to pick up a pen but you know use a dictaphone type on your laptop whatever it's so accessible and poetry is art which means it's taste so what's a crap poem to someone might be the best thing somebody else has ever read and also it is such a sense of pride when you start with this blank page and then at the end you have written something something's been born from you so I think that that feeling is addictive and once people dabble they tend to you know keep on dabbling and take it wherever they will and I think after two years of lockdown we have all just been sitting and stewing in our feelings and in our same four walls and now I mean I certainly feel like I've been climbing the walls and I'm ready to get out there and say things and hear things and see things and do things so I like that once you dabble your hooks like a a literary tattoo yeah (laughs) exactly Uh, so you know people that haven't read Hagstone shame on you but where can they get it where can they find you right so they can find me online um, on the publisher's website which is www.verbpoetrypress.com they can order it from there I don't know what shops it's in yet because I've been on holiday and haven't caught up with Stuart (laughs) so I will ask him I'll put that on my to-do list Um, but yeah for now head to his website support the publisher he does amazing things at Verve so yeah, yeah they've got their own festival as well which exactly is and where can people find you you can find me on all of the social medias just search for Georgina Wilding and I'll be there um, if you want to get in touch about bookings or anything you can find my website which is georginawildingpoet.co.uk beautiful stuff I, I forgot to bring you a badge but I am going to send you one I'll yes. get your address and send you one because I'm making a thing of handing these out now because I feel like I feel like there should be like a blue Peter badge if Absolutely. you've been on you get a badge you've but. got a tribe of us behind you with badges <laughs> on I like it <laughs> well it's been really fun thank you so much for taking the time out to chat about Hagstone oh, thank you for having me so pleased to be here cheers people's poetry podcast <laughs> Georgina kindly recited a poem from Hagstone called Cod. Cod. What a luxury it is to be boring. To sit on wooden show chairs as unenthused as the cod, slapped across the cheek with ice and propped dead behind the supermarket glass. To see no need to smile or speak with music, just to sound like a boat engine driving out the mouth. Perhaps some faint memory of the catch. Slumped in grey and flaking, no one asks where the iridescent scales are, the high shine. Instead, they hail that fish as the nation's favourite and serve it up, spineless, every Friday night. 
My thanks to the wonderful poets that featured this episode. A huge shout out to Charlie and Jake for all of the magical musical sounds you've heard throughout the podcast. Go and check out more of their work over on their Instagram at Charlie and Jake Music and on Twitter they're at Charlie and Jake too. A massive thank you as always to you at home for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please do share it with a friend. You can find us on Instagram at People's Poetry Podcast, over on Twitter at People underscore Poetry. You can find us on Facebook, People's Poetry Podcast. I'm on Twitter, JBO, that's JBO Pens Poems. And you can email us if you want to get involved with the show. If you're a poet yourself and you'd like to sit down and chat or social media just don't cut the mustard and you want to get in touch, it's peoplespoetrypodcast at hotmail.com. You are listening to the People's Poetry Podcast with me, Jimmy Bowman. People's Poetry Podcast.